0: welcome back to the final four is not on the schedule he is rod i am cameron uh and we are here to talk about notre dame rod um so this is actually notre dame this will be notre dame's first game um of the season whereas michigan state has already got the one in against um eastern um you know, Mike Bray's been there forever since 2001. Um, yeah. you know, they finished last year, 57th in Ken Palm, um, which was, uh, an improvement over the year prior where they had finished 97th, which was probably his worst year at Notre Dame. They only got three wins in the ACC. Um, 20 and 12 is where they finished overall last year, 10 and 10, uh, in the conference. Um, what what's your kind of take on on Notre Dame? They've had kind of a roller coaster ride with Mike Bray over the years. Yeah, I,
1: I think that's a, a fair way of, of putting it. In looking back over the course of his tenure, we can omit last season because it makes it even it makes it a little worse. Mm. Uh, but they weren't going to make the tournament last year. The, the ACC was not strong enough, and though their record doesn't look terrible, if you were twenty and twelve and 10 and 10 in the Big Ten, you were a tournament team, most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, where Notre Dame was in the ACC, they would not have been. So that would have made it three straight years without a tournament bid. Now, you juxtapose that to the three years prior. They had a team that went, uh, won a game and then lost in the second round, so they didn't get out of the first weekend, but still won a game there. And then the two years prior to that, they made consecutive Elite Eights, which is... I think that three-year period is the peak mm-hmm. of Mike Bray's coaching tenure. He's been okay. They've been, if, Again, if you omit last season, in 19 seasons, he's made the tournament 12 times. So he's batting just a hair under two-thirds of the time. Um It depends, I guess, on what your expectations are. The, the fact of the matter is, now I'm old enough and I think probably at least some of our listeners are, to remember a time when that would have been considered abject failure mm. at Notre Dame. Notre Dame was a true national power for really the entirety of the seventies and into the eighties as well, although that's when it started to slip. And and I think you can you can ascribe the slippage to four letters ESPN and and it's funny to say that but but this is the truth I always tell people who are too young to understand it Notre Dame at their height when I was a kid first starting to pay attention to the sport was the closest equivalent to what Duke is in the modern era and I mean that in in all respects they weren't quite as good in terms of the winning they never won a national championship but um, they were the only program that was regularly on national TV because they had an arrangement with NBC. So Notre Dame was on every weekend. This is an era where you were uh, Michigan State. A good number of games weren't even televised. Mm-hmm. I'm talking, you know, the Magic Johnson period. You know, um, Notre Dame was regularly on television, and because of that. And, and just the atmosphere around that school, because of the football program, too, um, they were able to get recruits from all over the country. That team that Michigan State beat, the Magic's team, beat in the regional final, which was, I think, the best team in Notre Dame history. Uh, had guys from all over. Bill Lambier was from California. Uh, Kelly Trapuca, I believe, was from New Jersey. I want to say Orlando Woolridge was from Texas. Um, they just had; they were truly oh, a national recruiting presence at a time where that was not very common. UCLA could do that, mm-hmm. but not many other schools did that because nobody was on TV that much. So, you know, most kids are going to go to the program they see, they're familiar with in that era, and that meant local programs. Notre Dame went way beyond that. So, when ESPN came into the picture. And all of a sudden, everybody was on TV a lot. It changed the game completely. And I think it reduced the impact of of Notre Dame as a recruiting force. You know, the other program that took a big hit, DePaul, for similar reasons. Because DePaul had this brief period, the late 70s into the early 80s, where they had a contract with WGN, you know, superstation, Yeah. And that broadcast nationally, and they were able to get people from all over, not quite to the extent that Notre Dame was, but they did national recruiting more than you would think. And again, they were another program that I think, as the 80s wore on, the effect of ESPN, And I'm using that as shorthand because, of course, the other networks came into play, too. But it was mostly ESPN. Mm -hmm. It just kind of ebbed away at the advantage that those schools had. But that that was the deal with Notre Dame. You know, Digger Phelps was there for a long time, well into the 90s, if I remember correctly. And, um, you know, he still had some good teams, but his peak was in the 1970s. There's no doubt about that. And it was due to, in my opinion, it was due mostly to the fact that they had a distinct recruiting advantage. What followed him was not as impressive, and so that's what I mean. This is all a roundabout way to say: How do we judge Mike Bray? Mm-hmm. It might be fair to say that 12 out of 19 or 12 out of 20, which it was going to be, 60 percent of the time, he gets to the tournament is fair for Notre Dame. I, you know, I that might be okay. It's just it's. It's funny to me to think about it because I always have in the back of my mind because, you you know, you have impressions that get formed when you're young that are hard to shake. And so in the back of my mind, even though I know full well Notre Dame is no kind of real national power mm-hmm. anymore, I can remember a time when they were, when they were the the arguably the program that had the most attention paid to it of any. You know? Um, so I don't know how to judge Mike Bray. I mean, Mike Bray, I... I put in our notes he's kind of they're they're kind of the ACC's version of Iowa and I mean Iowa in the um, in the recent uh, Fran McCaffrey era Mm -hmm. you know they're in the tournament more often than not but not every year Uh, they're very good offensively they don't turn the ball over a lot they generally shoot the ball pretty well but they're also generally pretty bad defensively and that's it's been the kind of the staple for both of those programs, so that's that's what they they remind me of more than anything else. It's kind of the ACC's Iowa. If you picture that, you got a pretty good grip on what Notre Dame's style of play is like overall. Mm. And and I don't think this year is going to be markedly different. I think it's it's pretty much same old, same old. If we look a little bit at last year transitioning to this year. They lost three starters and their top two scorers from last season, so that means there's a bit of a starting over element for them. But again, if you look at the last three years being tournamentless, maybe that's not the worst thing.
0: Yeah,
1: um, they were 41st on offense last year, 100 on D. So you see Iowa, right? Yeah. <laughs> Except not quite as good as Iowa was on offense. We'll say like a, an average McCaffrey team. Mm-hmm. is what they looked like um they were actually pretty mediocre shooting the ball last year but they were number three in the country in turnover percentage so that helped and even though they weren't great shooting the ball on a percentage basis they took a lot of threes so that also helped a little bit on defense the one thing they do well is they don't foul people uh, But they were burned a lot by the three, and they were a really bad defensive rebounding team. 180th in defensive rebounding percentage. So again, I think the the profile is pretty consistent with what I mentioned. Mm-hmm. That's they're they're a team that they're going to look as the cliche goes. They're going to look to outscore you. Well, you have to outscore the other team to win, but you know what I mean. They're they're going to look to win games. Because their offense is just that much better than yours. Good enough, and enough of a gap that it can overcome a shaky defense. Yeah.
0: Uh, so if we look at the projected starters, Prentice Hub, 6'3 junior point guard, um, sort of a, a leader last year for the Iris. 12.1 points a game, 5.1 assists. Um, so he, he looks to be maybe like the guy for them.
1: I think so. I think you have to you have to look at the position he plays. That Bray has kind of leaned on him as a developing leader, and so now a junior and a returning starter. It's fair to us, and one of the four captains. It's fair to assume that he will fill that role. Um, decent year last year. You know, five point one assists per game. 39, 34, 71 shooter, about two-thirds of the shots come from three. So not bad, but my understanding is his career has been kind of marked by some inconsistency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so for Notre Dame to be better, I think one of the places that has to start is that Hub has to be much more consistent as a floor leader, much more consistent as a deep shooter because they need scoring. So, you know, he averaged 12 points a game last year. I would think they're going to be looking for him to kick that up by five, six points a game. Mm-hmm. He's got to play that kind of role.
0: Uh, and then Dane Goodwin, six five junior, uh, 10.8 points a game last year, 26 minutes a game, uh, but mostly off the bench, uh, although he mm-hmm. did start two games.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's an interesting player. He's from Ohio. I saw a fair amount of him because he was an AAU teammate of uh, Foster Lawyer and Thomas Kithiers on all Ohio Reds, mm. and you know that was Foster Lawyer's team. He was the guy. Dane Goodwin was one of the sidekicks. Um, Dane Goodwin is—I this is an easy comparison because they were both from Ohio, and they were the guy I'm going to mention was in college at the time that I was seeing Goodwin but he always kind of struck me as a poor man's Luke Kennard. <laughs> he was Luke he was Luke Connard without without a, a, a lesser a lesser athlete version of Luke Connard um, but he had good shooting numbers last year 43 38 83 you know three-point shootings always a big feature of a Mike Bray offense and I would think Goodwin is going to be a guy who, although he played a lot last year off the bench, his role is going to increase substantially, and we'll, we'll get to why that's the case for all these guys. Their minutes are going to go way up, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and, and so Notre Dame's again, just as, just as with, with, uh, Hub, Goodwin's got to be a big time scorer for them. They need him to be a guy probably at least scoring in the middle teens, if not more. So I expect he's going to be someone that they're going to look to get shots for with frequency. Mm-hmm. And he's the best shooter on a team that really didn't shoot it all that well. So, uh,
0: And then they get a transfer in from Stanford, uh, Cormac Ryan, 6'5", junior, uh, started 17 of the 24 games um, and averaged 8.7 points
1: a game uh, for Stanford. Yeah, big, big addition. Um, definitely a big addition for them. Uh, Ryan was a, a, a highly regarded recruit. He was a top 100 guy. I think Michigan had interest in him. This is the beeline era. Mm-hmm. He's that kind of player, you know, Stanford, obviously. Notre Dame, I believe, recruited him hard coming out of high school. He went to Stanford, played one year, and then transferred. And he's actually, this is, this says something about him, I guess. Uh, as a transfer, he's elected one of the four captains, and Bray has mentioned his leadership, his vocal leadership in particular. So this is a guy who's going to have a big impact on this team. The one year he played at Stanford, 8.7 points a game on 33, 32, 74 shooting, and he started 17 of the 24 games he played in. Um, Those shooting numbers are not great, but his reputation was as a shooter. That's what got him that level of, the level of interest that he had. And so it wouldn't be a surprise to see him improve. I mean, we've talked about this many, many times. Guys come out of high school. I mean, in the current Big Ten, you can look at Foster Lawyer. You can look at um, Dwayne Washington at Ohio State as a couple of recent examples. Guys with big, big-time reputations as shooters in high school. Freshman year, maybe less than stellar, but as a sophomore, they kind of got their legs under them and improved. I wouldn't be surprised to see that from Cormac Ryan because he had that that reputation as as a guy who was potentially a really big-time shooter. So again, as with Goodwin, who's going to be on the other wing, they need Cormac Ryan to be an impact guy. Notre Dame's offense always relies a lot on threes. He's a guy who has a rep as a shooter. He's got to shoot it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then late Nate Lazewski, 6'10", junior, uh, who... Came off the bench last year in about 21 minutes a game, um, 7.4 points or 4.6 rebounds. Um, it looks like maybe you think they're going to be likely starting him at the four this year.
1: They don't have a choice, mm. I don't think. Yeah, and he played a lot last year as a reserve. It's, again, he's a junior, so it's natural for him to be stepping up. Uh, despite his size of 6'10", this is a guy who's a perimeter player, 41-31-73. Again, not great. Uh, two-thirds of his attempts came from deep. So despite his height, you're talking about a stretch four in terms of the way he plays. Again, they need him to be better. You know, he's shown flashes, but they need him to do more than that. They need him to be consistent.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And then at the five, Juwan Durham, 6'11", 230, fifth-year senior. Um, He averaged 7.8 points a game, 4.6 rebounds. Um, but he, he also played quite a bit last year and had a, about two blocks a game, 17.5 minutes.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think that, that, that shot blocking is the big element, you know. Um, that's what the primary pr- uh, positive that he contributed to the Irish last year. And it's probably going to be the same thing this year. This is not a good defensive team. And when you look at those, those guys we've just mentioned, athletically, this is not a team that you look at and say, well, they got a great chance to be better. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, again, I go back to Iowa. It's kind of like my hang up with Iowa this year. I look at that roster and I think, okay, why do I believe this team is going to be better? This isn't a, it's not a case where You've got good athletes, but they just haven't figured out how to actually play. They haven't figured out concepts yet. You know, they're limited athletically and it is kind of who they are. I think it's the same thing for Notre Dame. So, um, I think it's fair to say that with Notre Dame, any defense they can get is, um, is a big positive and, and they, they need it um and he gives them that he's got that physical presence he's got size and the paint uh, and he's done it you know he was a starter last year all but one game although he, he only played 17 and a half minutes so you wonder about conditioning but as we're going to get into given Notre Dame's bench I he's he's gonna have to he might even have to come close to doubling that point. <laughs> I mean, it's a rough situation for Notre Dame in terms of depth. They have virtually no proven depth at all, and the freshmen they're bringing in are not guys who are highly regarded. So, all of these guys we just talked about as starters, I I think if I were Mike Bray, I'd be looking at all five of these guys and saying I need about thirty minutes a night minimum mm-hmm. out of you. I don't know if if he has that in him. Um, you know
0: They're only three hundred and thirty third in the country in bench it's used uh, last year. And that's before yeah. losing these guys.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I, I it's it's an interesting situation. So anyway, um, that's that's that. And and as we get into the well, go ahead. You can lead us into yeah. that. So the, coming off the bench, um, one of the before we before we get into the guys we mentioned there there is one element here, and it's it's proven to be um, a real challenge to um, to get information on this stuff. But Notre Dame does have one guy who potentially could help them, named Trey Wertz, a 6 transfer from Santa Clara. He's a guard. Um, played a lot, averaged almost 12 points a game and almost four assists per game at Santa Clara, 40% behind the three-point line, 48% overall. So these are good numbers. (laughs) Uh, And the year before that, he was a West Coast Conference all-freshman selection. Mm -hmm. The problem is, as of right now, I have not heard anything about a waiver being approved, and I've looked. So we're assuming that he is not playing since that information does not appear to be out there if he were to play it is just a caveat um i would expect trey works to play a lot both on and off the ball and it would be a huge benefit for notre dame uh, for the reasons we're about to touch on because it would give them somebody who at least has done something at the d1 level
0: mm-hmm. yeah because there's not a whole lot of um, backcourt on this bench no um you know, you start off with Nicolo uh Nicola uh D Di-Gi- Digiago. Yeah. Di- How do you say that? Digiago?
1: I think that's a fair attempt. Di-Giago. Yeah. Uh six eight,
0: two thirty, fifth year senior, um but just under a point a game, about a rebound a game in six minutes last year.
1: Yeah, it's it's not good. This is he's a, a fifth year guy. He's a co captain, so he's obviously got respect from his teammates, but In terms of production, it's really limited. Last year, in about six minutes per game, he shot, get ready for this, 13% (laughs) overall, 11% from three, 80% from the line in very limited volume. Most of his attempts came from three. So I would expect that if he does anything positively for Notre Dame, it's probably going to be his jump shooter. But you don't really like your odds of success in looking at that, right? Um, And that's it. For a, a, a guy who's a proven, or I shouldn't even say proven, who's played any basketball at the D one level off the Notre Dame bench, other than again, if Trey Wirtz were to get um, his uh, his his waiver approved, um, that would be the um, that would be the exception. But you know, for now. Um, yeah you, you have to you have to assume that it's not happening mm-hmm. um which is strange because most of them have happened uh but anyway so that's 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 where we are this is this is really it for proven depth We're <laughs> mm-hmm. being very proven is doing a lot
0: of heavy lifting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh yeah the next three guys are all freshmen um Tony Sanders, six seven. Um, do we know what do we know about his positioning?
1: They say he's athletic and capable of playing and some positional versatility, capable of playing the wing or maybe as a small ball forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Elijah Taylor, 6'8", 230.
1: Yeah, more of a more of a post guy. Uh, I would expect he'd be the guy who would back up Durham mm-hmm. for whatever minutes are, are required.
0: Uh, and then Matt
1: Zona, six nine. Yeah, kind of more of a typical Bray big man. If you if you know what I'm talking about, Mike Bray has had a lot of guys over his run there who have fit this bill. They they've tended to be big white guys, um, who don't aren't really great athletes, but they're strong and they get bigger over their time there. So they have some interior game and then they also have even though they're not great athletes, they're skilled. They have the ability to face up, step away from the bucket and shoot, even hit threes. Uh Zona is a guy they think um can do both of those things, can can post and and face up, but how ready he is to do that right now is a question. He's six nine and they list him at about two forty, so at least the listed height and weight would suggest he might be ready to compete. You know the thing you got to keep in mind with all these guys—they um, were all rated. I think the highest-rated guy was, uh, according to Rivals, was at 198, and the others were sub 200 nationally. So this is this is not a case of you know high-profile guys like somebody like Dane Goodwin, for example. I think in the end he might have fallen out of the top 100, but it wasn't by a lot. He was a guy who was a known, you know, high major recruit. I think Ohio State had offered him, um, you know, there were, there were other big time programs involved with him. Um, Cormac Ryan, as I mentioned, was a top 100 guy, you know, so they have guys on this team that were in that category. The three kids that brought in, in this class fall way outside of that range. And, yeah, I, I just don't know. It's one thing if you're getting guys like that, and one of two things is either the case: either you're trying to build a program, maybe you're Rutgers and Steve Peichel when mm-hmm. he got in there, um, or Fran McCaffrey when he started at Iowa and it was kind of you know program have been kind of nuked. Um, okay, you you can take your chances with guys like that because that's who you can get, and you play them, and you hope to develop them, or you can in turn hope that you can park them for a year or two and develop them in practice until they're really ready to go. And maybe you've gotten some diamonds in the rough and, and you develop them. But getting guys like that, having to play them, and hoping that you're going to be a tournament team, that's a tough trick to turn. And that's kind of what Notre Dame is. It, it is worth mentioning, there is another guy, another top one, previous Top 100 recruit named Robbie Carmody, who's a wing. Um, and, again, another guy who had a reputation in high school as a big-time shooter hasn't really shown it yet, He and he's had a lot of health problems. But he's supposed to be back at some point this season. They've He's got a dislocated kneecap, so he's out through December. So we definitely won't see him on Saturday. But that will give them at least one more body, theoretically, assuming he gets back and can play. Mm-hmm. But it's still – it's tough. I mean, to – you just think forget forget like just the the normal rest that you want to get players during the course of a game. Put that aside. Think about how you deal with foul trouble. And, again, Notre Dame has a tradition under Bray and a style of play that doesn't tend to foul very much, but yeah. it can always happen, even in those situations, even with that kind of team. You can always have the wrong night where you're just getting a bad whistle. You know, that happens. They're not. They're not in a position to really withstand much in the way of foul trouble. They don't seem to be in a position to really be able to get their their primary players much in the way of rest. So it's it's really tough. He's, you know, the starting lineup. I can I can squint and see a way in which Notre Dame's starting lineup can be decent, but it's really tough when you're asking guys to be iron men, you know, like that, you know. Yeah, um,
0: especially if you get a COVID hit.
1: Well that too. I to, you know why wow, that's a they really might... good point. Then you've got you've got that right. And we are entering, you know, it's worth talking about. We're now at a point definitely in the Big Ten and I think you're going to see the other high majors quickly follow suit with this because it's really smart um and and an effective way to minimize the disruption from COVID. Uh Two things are happening. One, you've got now the CDC supposedly set to recommend a change. I think we might have mentioned this in the other, in in one of the recent podcasts that they seem to be set to recommend a change for the quarantine period to seven to 10 days. Well, that will help, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is daily testing. So in the Big Ten, for example, they are testing daily and the plan is if a guy tests positive, he goes into quarantine, and again, probably for a lesser period of time than has been the case to, up till now. But he goes into quarantine, but there's no more of this contact tracing stuff that just takes other guys or the whole program out. You know, we found out after the game what the deal was with Eastern Michigan. It was a, it was a contact tracing thing. You know, they had a manager who tested positive, and so they had six guys that missed the MSU game, and it was due to contact tracing. Now, in Not leagues like the Mac, that, they,
0: tested they positive. weren't
1: positive. Yeah. None of them had tested positive, positive. Um, and that's why they think they're going to have them back shortly. But but they still had to sit them. Um, in in the MAC, I don't know whether the resources are going to be there to change that anytime soon. In the Big Ten. And I would imagine the other high majors are going to do this, too. It it just stands to reason that they would. Um, You can avoid that. Mm. The Big Ten's protocol right now is if somebody gets tested positive, they go into quarantine, but the team does not as long as other people are testing negative because they're getting tested every day. So you don't have to worry about, well, they might be negative now, but what about four days from now? Well, you're going to know every day where they're at. And so that to me gives you a much greater chance of the season going forward without, you know, really minimizing disruptions. It's not going to matter for the non-conference because some of these, you know, mid-majors that you're playing may get hit with these things, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that's a that's just how it is. You know, so those games may get canceled. We've already seen, you know, the first two days of the season, a number of games getting canceled. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of I don't know ten to fifteen percent. I think yeah have been canceled.
0: Northwestern and um, Penn State both either canceled one of them canceled one
1: postponed. I think right. So so there, but it wasn't because of the Big Ten programs. I don't believe. I think it was the opponents. Um, but once we get into the league play, I think that's going to change. So that might be that might be something that helps Notre Dame. But you're right to point it out. Because that's another area where, man, just not having any depth, I, yeah, you just you don't you just don't know. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see, and again, if if um, if Wirtz can play, it, it helps them quite a bit because he's a guy that they can probably use at all three perimeter spots, and you know he could be another thirty minute a night guy, right? He can mm-hmm. play ten minutes at each spot. And that means that if four guys playing the three perimeter spots at 30 minutes each, that, that would be helpful for Mike Bray, but he's, he's in a tough spot as it stands. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So uh, we move on to the keys. Um, number one, guard the arc. Um, you know, Notre Dame shoots a lot of threes. They weren't great last year at 34%, uh, 108th right. in the country. Um, but when so much of their offense is centered around it, you, I guess you, you worry that maybe
1: they have a hot night. That's exactly it. You know, you can – the numbers over the course of a season can certainly can tell a story. And so we can come into this game saying, hey, based on the track record these guys have, this is not a team that you would bet on to shoot it extremely well. But as we mentioned – there are guys who can get better over time. And as you just alluded to a season number doesn't necessarily mean anything on one given night. Mm -hmm. And, and so the best way to handle an opponent like that is you limit the looks that they get. So Michigan state needs to be cognizant of that. Um, they've got to limit the clean looks that notre dame gets so that's going to mean there's going to be a real emphasis on the perimeter uh perimeter defense and you know not even just the the point guard and the two wings but the four man as well so joey hauser malik hall those guys are going to because as we've mentioned um you know notre dame's power forward Lazowski, is mostly a three-point shooter So you've got to locate and close on him as well. So that's the the primary challenge. And the interesting thing about that is going to be, you know, we and and this has already become the hot topic coming off one game, is what happens at the point. Um, You know, Foster Lawyer, now I happen to think he's probably better at locating and closing on three-point shooters than he is stopping penetration. Mm-hmm so this might help, but you know, might play into his lesser weakness, let's say. But if he's playing a lot and Rocket Watts isn't playing as much, at least based on what we saw last year, that's a hit to MSU's perimeter defense. We talked coming into the season how this could be one of the really great defensive groups MSU's had in recent years on the perimeter, and I still mm-hmm. believe that. But in the Eastern Michigan game, Rocket Watts and Josh Laneford were not very good defensively. So they need to be better. MSU needs to be better as a team. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the playing time allotment goes because that could impact what MSU can do defensively um, in this area and in general, mm-hmm. you
0: know. Uh, and then the second point, boards. Uh, MSU was not very good on uh, the rebounding last, last
1: game. No, um, very, very disappointing. I mean, the, the stats don't look horrible when you look at the percent. They gave up 10 offensive rebounds to Eastern, okay? And that that's not terrible, and Eastern missed a lot of shots, so the percentage is not terrible. But, man, watching it, it did not feel like Michigan State was doing very much mm. on glass, and they also weren't effective on the offensive end either, And and We'll repeat what we talked about in the post game. That was against a team that was way down in numbers, that because of that was playing very small and playing a matchup zone, which should create opportunities for you. Uh, and MSU couldn't capitalize on any of that. Hmm. You know, the defensive boards in particular are a point at least for me, they're a point of emphasis because it was a, it's was it been a very uncharacteristic performance for Michigan State the last couple of years in that phase of the game. It needs to get better. Notre Dame is not going to be a great rebounding team. They weren't last year. I don't see a lot of reasons to think there's major improvement coming this season either. Um, but neither was Eastern Michigan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at a minimum, what you want to see is you want to see Michigan State doing a much better job controlling the defensive glass? It's that which really counts because the other impact felt from that against Eastern was how much did you really feel Michigan State got done in transition? Not very. Not a whole lot. Very little. What and, and mostly what they got done. There were a couple times they got, got behind sport. the defense a little bit. A couple times, yeah, and and they did get a couple layups. But man, for the most part, the little bit they got done was kind of like tr- secondary break stuff, where Eastern got back. But MSU w- was in was in their running game enough that it led to an open jumper. You know, mm-hmm. one of Foster's threes came as a result of that, for example, but they didn't get a lot done. And if you can't rebound cleanly on the defensive end, it is hard to run. Mm -hmm. So this is a game, as we're going to get into, you want to run because Notre Dame doesn't have the athletes really to compete with you. And it's going to play to your advantage, not just – and we talk about this all the time – It's not just about what point production you get in transition. It's also about the physical toll that it exacts on your opponent to have to run with you for 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're looking at a team with a shallow bench, that's even more important. You know, you want Goodwin and Ryan and all these guys to be sucking wind in the last seven, eight minutes of the game. That's what you want. Mm -hmm. And you can't, it's a lot harder to do that if you can't control your defensive glass.
0: Uh, and then mistakes, uh, is the, is the other key here. Uh, Michigan State turned the ball over 18 times. Uh, Notre Dame typically does not turn the ball over very right. much.
1: Well, we said number three in the country in yeah. TO percentage last year. And, and that's kind of a program staple. So I don't expect a huge difference this time around. Uh, you know, one way they can stay in the game is if there's a big turnover advantage because that, will mean that there's a big advantage in terms of scoring opportunities, right? Just Mm -hmm. shots that get put up. Um, We can hope that for MSU, some of what we saw was attributable to first game jitters, rough spots, playing against a matchup zone. You're thinking, I will say this, most of their turnovers were a result of that and not that they were pressured into it. Notre Dame is not a pressure team at all. Mm-hmm. They are, they are very, very low year in, year out in terms of turnover percentage defensively. They just don't force much that way. So whatever happens in this game is likely to be much more a result of Michigan State, um, beating itself, so to speak. And that's what can't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, they, they can't afford that. We, we can't see the, the passes to nobody. You know, those walks, all that stuff has got to get cleaned up. You know, I don't expect them to have fewer turnovers than Notre Dame does in this game. But we talk about this usually when MSU is playing a team like Wisconsin or, you know, John Beeline's Michigan or Iowa. You don't have to beat them in that area, but you got to keep it relatively close. It's the same way most opponents usually view MSU in rebounding. Mm-hmm. We know we're not going to out rebound them, but if we can keep it close, we've done a job. Well, that's kind of how it is for MSU in turnovers in this game.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the fourth key depth—an uh, area definitely Michigan State has a huge advantage in.
1: Yeah, and and so again, you want Notre Dame, you want Notre Dame to one of two things: you want Notre Dame to be tired, and hopefully, you want Notre Dame to have to be playing some guys minutes they don't want to play them. And, and that could be because guys need rest, or it can be because you managed to get them in foul trouble. As we say, the last part is easier said than done because Bray teams typically are not very foul prone. Mm-hmm. So it may be easier said than done to put somebody in foul trouble, but if they can, for example, if they could manage to get Juwan Durham in foul trouble, well, then you're talking because the one kind of defensive presence they have and a rim protector is out of there, that could open a lot of things up. Um, so that would be one example, you know. But, but in general, if you're MSU, you want this game to turn in a lot of ways on the issue of depth.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then pace. Uh, so Notre Dame wasn't a particularly fast team, 109, uh, 190th in the country in pace last right. year.
1: But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Bray try to slow it down even a bit more because the slower you play, the more energy you conserve and the fewer possessions there are, which in theory should minimize the opportunities for guys to pick up fouls, right? So it's, if you are playing a short bench the way they're likely going to be, you're better off in a game where you're running clock. You take a lot of time off, and hopefully your defense holds up well enough that you're forcing the other team to take some time, too. That's what they want to do. So for MSU, big key, run. You want to push. And they didn't do a great job in that first game. It starts with attention to detail on the defensive glass. If they control the defensive glass, then they should have an opportunity to push the pace and you know for for Notre Dame you know we, we say oftentimes that part of the reason Michigan State is able to run so successfully in the non-conference is most opponents are just simply not ready for it mm-hmm. they don't see anything like it Notre Dame does because one of the few teams in America that plays the way Michigan State tries to is North Carolina A lot of similarities there. So if you're an ACC team, and that's the thing, MSU is playing three ACC schools in this non-conference out of the seven games. So those teams have some familiarity with what MSU likes to do because they play Carolina, and it's a similar approach. So Notre Dame will know what it wants to accomplish. Whether they can accomplish it or not in holding that pressure down is another issue, and if you're Michigan State, You really need to push, push, push. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not getting layups or dunks out of it, keep pushing because forcing those guys to move for 40 minutes is going to pay dividends down the stretch.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, this Notre Dame game Saturday at six and then they follow it up against the six. I thought it was eight, I thought it was eight o'clock. I got six on this schedule let me see
1: maybe you might be right you might be right the uh, big Ten network. let me see i know it's uh i know it's at um i know it's on the big 10 network no i've got 8 p.m really on the big 10 network yeah i think it i think it got switched i think they were originally talking about six but yeah it's eight o'clock okay
0: uh and then right after that rod duke tuesday
1: Right, and and so that's – you know, it's – I don't expect the Notre Dame game to mean a lot, 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 because I, I don't think they're a team you look at as likely tournament quality right now. Mm-hmm. They could be. I mean, we haven't seen them play yet. Uh, but it's still a game against a high major opponent. And because there are so few of these non-conference games – you know, and the next two quality opponents, Duke and Virginia, are going to be tough, you know, both on the road, for whatever that means this year, but um, but quality opponents, nevertheless, that's going to be a challenge to win those games. So this is the one you look at out of those three high-major non-conference opponents, and you say, well, this is one we ought to get. Mm-hmm. So you need to get it. The other thing that we haven't really we, we mentioned it, but we haven't really talked about it as a factor, which will be interesting is this this is Notre Dame's opener. They haven't played yet. yeah, so Michigan State has a game under its belt. Will that show up? Will we will we look at it and say, well MSU made a lot of improvement, kind of shook the rust off and, and got down to business and Notre Dame looked like a team playing its first game. That could be the case. So one other thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Okay.
0: Well, that'll do it for Notre Dame. Uh, until the uh, postgame, the Final Four is not yet. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger